Hey everybody, and welcome back to Equestrian. This episode, we get the opportunity to interview Caroline. And last week, I was in the hot seat, and now it is Caroline that I'm going to interview and give a little bit of background to her uh, beginnings in the horse world and what got her started. And hopefully, y'all will have a little bit of a better understanding of Caroline. That way, moving forward in some of our later episodes, um, we'll just have a great background for the two of us. Uh, so let's get started. Woo! I'm ready-ish. I'm sort of ready. I'm guardedly ready. <laughs> All right. Well, we're starting there's an, now. There's an element of readiness. So let's get started on you, Caroline. Woohoo! Let's, let's talk about your beginnings in the horse world. Unlike me, I, I did not grow up in a farm-oriented family, but Caroline did. So I, let's talk a little bit about like your first horses, growing up on a farm, having a family where your like your brother was into 4-H, and let's just talk a little bit about you, your family, and your family farm. Sure. So I kind of grew up in an accidental farming dynamic. So my mom and dad both grew up in the city. They both grew up in Baltimore City. They were not farm kids by any stretch. Um, my grandfather had grown up riding in the 40s um, in the Marines and had done like the point to point races and show jumped in Madison Square Garden. And that was the only tie to the horse world that I had. Um, my mom always loved horses, but they lived in the city and it just wasn't an option. Um, so when my mom and dad were thinking about getting married, my grandmother offered them an acre on a farm in Carroll County, Maryland, um, that was part of the farm that she had been raised on, um, that her parents had owned. Um, so she offered that to them to build a house on. And so my city dwelling parents were like, shoot, yeah, we're going to do that. You know, it was a, it was an awesome opportunity for these like broke city kids. Um, so along comes me and my little brother. And I was like every little girl, you don't really know where it comes from. Um, but you know that you have got to like touch a pony, ride a pony, have a pony. Um, and it's super funny. There's actually a home video of me getting a pony ride. And I'm probably like three or four years old. And um, my dad's holding the camera and he says, while I'm getting this pony ride, Caroline tells me that when I fix up the old barn and build a fence, she's going to get a pony. Yeah, right. That's not going to happen. Um, turns out he was wrong. Um, so I'd always wanted a horse. I had started taking riding lessons when I was little, um, at a very limited level. And, um, when I was seven, um, my dad actually worked for the telephone company and my parents had a very limited income and my dad salvaged all of the old telephone poles and used those to build a fence uh, around the old barn on the property and fixed it up. And literally knowing absolutely nothing about horses, horse ownership, like literally nothing. My mom and dad um, bought me my first horse and a little pony to keep her company. And her name was Betty and she was a paint app draft cross and it was like a real weird dynamic, but I had the opportunity. My parents always instilled in me that like, you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish if you're willing to work for it. You and my mom, I remember this conversation clear as day. I was seven years old and my mom was like, we're going to do this horse project, but you're going to do the work. 
you're going to get up every morning and every night and you're going to do barn chores. And the day that you decide that you don't feel like doing this anymore, we are not keeping them because this is not something that we can afford as an indulgence, which jokes on you, mom, because I'm 31 and I uh, (laughs) still still do this. Might have backfired a little bit. Um, So growing up, I never had a tremendous amount of resources um, allocated to my horse journey um, as far as like horse showing and riding oh, lessons and that sort of a horse thing. journey. <laughs> oh, no. I said journey. That's one demotion. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. But Continue. I, um, I had a mixed breed, half sound deer animal at my house and her little 90-year-old ancient pony companion. And so I was the little girl that chopped my pony's mane off and rampaged around the countryside. And I literally would dress up like the Lone Ranger and play the Lone Ranger soundtrack. And like, that was just such a part of me growing up. And um, so as a result, I realized very early on, and one of the most important things um, that I'm so thankful for um, my parents for instilling in me is your work has value. If you go to somebody and you're willing to work for them for free or nothing, you can forge relationships and make connections and learn stuff that you would not have access to in any other way. So early in my life, I learned you can leverage labor for knowledge and experience and connection. And so I did that all through my youth. Um, I did 4-H shows and I went to work at a ranch and um, I just poured myself into every part of the horse world that I could possibly get access to. Um, and your brother too, he was involved in 4-H as well. Yes. He was guardedly involved in livestock. Um, he wasn't quite as bit by the agriculture bug as I was, um, but he did show steers for a couple of years and he had chickens and my mom and dad were so supportive of our projects and there wasn't a lot of money to fund the projects, but there was so much work and love and like figure out a way. Like you can, you can figure out a way to make this happen. Like you can work for it. You can barter for it. You can ask for it. You can, you can figure out a way to make this work. Um, and so that's what I grew up doing. Um, I, and as a result, I had the opportunity to experience so much in the horse world, um, as a little girl, um, and, and growing up through like my high school years. And, and I really took the opportunity to, Hey, I will work for you. I will be your slave. Teach me something. And so I had the opportunity to work at an eventing barn and a dressage barn and for a reining trainer and start colts and do some barrel racing and work for Western pleasure people and just throw myself into every opportunity that um, came my way. I had done some English riding, some Western riding. Um, I fell in love with rodeoing and barrel racing and the Western horse lifestyle. And so um, I did do that uh, for several years in my youth. Um, I, it's so funny. One of my favorite anecdotes, I'm pretty sure I just rubbed my eye with Sriracha unrelated. Um, and you're not even supposed to be touching your face these days. I know. Oh no. Um, but that's what you ought to do. Everybody is put like some hot, (laughs) chop some jalapenos. (laughs) And if you touch your face, you'll know. Um, So when I was in kindergarten, I went to a rodeo and I saw a trick rider and I drew a picture of it in my kindergarten class and said, when I grow up, I want to learn how to stand on a horse and I want to be a trick rider. 
And when I was eight years old, I had the opportunity to meet a lady who was trick riding and I asked her if she would teach me. And so I had the opportunity to learn how to be a rodeo trick rider. Um, and I did that at rodeos from uh, the time that I was 13 until I was 24-ish I, for about 10 years. Um, I did that. Yeah. I was going to say, let's let's take that opportunity to kind of delve into the Christian ranch that you yeah. grew up kind of working and riding for. Because that was definitely a pretty fundamental, it was a huge part foundational of my life. influence. Yeah. Um, so there's a ranch near my house growing up that was started by two brothers who moved to America and they wanted to be ranchers. And so they created this Christian retreat center horse breeding, cowboy-centric operation that had rodeos all summer and hosted camps and retreats and bred horses. And um, it was just incredible. And so when I went there, um, which goes back to what my parents taught me, like if you offer service, you can get something that's just as valuable to you in return. I went there when I was 12 and I wanted to work for their horse program and they said I was too young. So instead I offered to, well, I'll just come and clean all the tack every weekend. I'll just come every Saturday and I'll come with my little bucket of soap and water and my jug of Neats foot oil and I'll just sit in the tack room and I'll clean all the saddles. And I did that every Saturday for a year and I started getting opportunities to ride and to, you know, just help with different things and got to know everybody and I was able to go to work there in the summer times um, through my teenage years and that just had a huge impact in my life. It's where I learned to trick ride. It's where I got a chance to barrel race. It's where I learned how to speak to people. And it's where I learned how to teach. It's where I learned um, herd management and horse care and really um, immersed me in so much more of the horse world that I had had the opportunity to have exposure to as like a, just like a little 4-H kid at home. Um, and so um, it was a huge part of my life um, and it, I, up until a year ago, I still would go back there every summer and volunteer and help out. And I served on the rodeo board and I would, um, help with the rodeos. They do no longer do that anymore. Um, but it was a huge part of my life. And also, um, kind of think of everything you do as something that has the opportunity to prepare you for the next level. I'm going to interject for one second, because I think what you said about cleaning tack there every Saturday was, is, is such a such an important lesson because I feel like that's how I've stumbled into a lot of opportunities is just by being available and people really take note when you're like look I know what I want I'm I'm willing to sit here and work for you and and give you the time and show you my and like prove to you my dedication and wait for the opportunity because I know what I want and I want to work for you and I want to do this and I'll sit here and wait for for when you're ready to let me work for you and I, and I know that that's not and you can realistic. capitalize on opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's how I've I found my um, position with my mentor. Now I was like, well, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be available, and when I'm going to serve. Me, here. Yeah. And I think it goes to like, are you a giver or are you a taker? Like, there are so many people in the world and in the community that we're part of that always want to know what they can get from somebody. But in reality, if you go through this life and this industry thinking about what you can give to somebody, the dividends on that are incredible because when you have like the heart of a servant, when you have a heart to like give and you're willing to work, people will give you opportunity. You can go to someone and say, Hey, I want this. And they'll be like, yeah, no, sorry, we can't do it. And you can go home and be done. Or they can say, um, you can say, I want this. 
and they'll say, ah, no, you know, sorry about your luck. Okay. Well, just like you said in your current situation and me as a child, there, like, all right, well, that's fine. Um, but I'm going to serve you anyway. I'm going to find a way to be valuable. Yeah. Or like, you don't need me now, but I'm going to be here every weekend. And the day that you need somebody, the first, the person you're going to think of is me. Right. Because I'm going to know all the horses. I'm going to know where everything is at. And I am going to, you kind of like just log like a credit of value. And then, you know, one day that's going to, that's just going to pay out to you. And so Mm -hmm. I did have the opportunity to do that. Um, I got into barrel racing um, in high school. I loved it. Um, I had the opportunity um, to meet a trainer who I still um, adore. He and his family um, and have a great relationship with them to this day. And I bought my first real horse. Um, I had always had kind of like the ramshackle thrown together, not reject, but like not something that would be a performance animal. And I was so grateful to have those animals that contributed to me as a rider. Um, but it got to the point where I wanted to be able to rodeo and I wanted to be able to go to barrel races. And so, um, uh, my grandparents, um, specifically my grandfather, um, my parents and I went in on a mare for $1,200 and, um, we bought her. I was 12 years old. I still have her. I've had her for 19 years. Um, she is the horse that has my heart. Um, and she was a lunatic. Uh, there's no way <laughs> on this planet. Was. She sometimes still is. And you know what? One of the most gratifying moments of my life the other day, the vet came and gave her her rabies and tetanus shot. And the vet was like, wow, she's so much different than she used to be. And I was like, yeah, you didn't even know her in the bad years. Um, But she still lives on my parents' farm. uh, And I will have her until the day she dies. Um, And she she was really the catalyst for teaching me... um, beyond the rudimentary stop, go left, right, um, don't fall off type of horse person and to teach me to be an empathetic rider and an understanding rider and a firm rider and a rider that can um, just start to understand that I have to be fully willing to um, be vulnerable to my horse. But at the same time, I have to be the leader and I have to communicate with them in a way that they understand. And I have to set boundaries and I have to enforce them. Um, The trainer that I purchased her from, um, I later went to work for, had the opportunity to learn a tremendous amount from him. And um, that mare is really, um, I don't ever advise that anybody buy a green broke seven-year-old with an aggressive streak uh, for their 12-year-old. I don't think that's an advisable plan. Um, but, uh, she was my first quote unquote real horse and, um, she and I kind of figured each other out. And for a year she broke every single thing that I owned, including me multiple times. And, uh, my parents told me I would have to put her up for sale. I did. No one would buy her. Uh, she was crazy. And, um, I ended up just kind of progressing on her, learned a lot, um, because I had to keep riding her because I was trying to sell her. Um, (laughs) she ended up getting better. I ended up keeping her. Um, I won a belt buckle on her. She was very volatile, very hit or miss, not a trustworthy horse. Um, she would either do very well or she would be dangerous. It was just kind of the way that she was. Um, and then, uh, she was retired, um, in her mid teen years because of a suspensory injury. Um, the stall rest and rehab wasn't her cup of tea. Um, so I was just thankful to have her sound and I turned her out. Um, and I still have her. She is the matriarch of my parents' farm. Um, but through that time, I also, um, 
just capitalize on every opportunity to learn uh, the dressage farm that Annie mentioned on her podcast that she worked for. I also had the opportunity to work for, I had the opportunity to work for an upper level eventing facility. I started some cults for a reigning trainer um, or for a Western pleasure trainer. And I went to work for a reigning trainer that did cult starting problem horses and reigning horses. And he was the trainer that I had purchased my horse from. And I worked for him for several years. Um, And then I went to college at Towson University in Baltimore. I have a degree in animal behavior. I don't know that I really use it for anything, but I do have it. Um, I don't know that that's true. I I would say it taught me. In and of itself. Oh, go ahead. I think in and of itself, having a degree is something that it just shows um, people, people have all these opinions about college degrees, but I think what it really shows not necessarily intellect, but perseverance. Yes. And so I think it speaks to that. It, I wholeheartedly agree. It shows that you're not that you need one by any stretch. Um, but I think through the demonstration of procuring a degree or through other manners, you demonstrate that you have the ability to commit to something, um, that you don't have to, you have to go to high school. You do not have to go to college, you know? So if you get a degree, it shows that you are, um, you're at least able in some, some level to commit to that. And you can demonstrate that through other avenues. But um, I did go to college. My parents were very supportive of my horse project, but also very realistic. Um, everything that I did was on a shoestring. And they were very clear that the older they got, I got, the more responsibility I had to take on. Um, I had to pay for it. I had to work for it. Um, and when I went to college, they gave me the oper- the um, choice. Uh, you can go away to school somewhere. Um, but you cannot keep your horses at home. Um, you have to take them with you. Um, or you can go somewhere within a commutable distance. You can live at home. You can continue to have your horses and we'll help you. Um, so I did not live at college. I commuted, um, a couple of days a week and I was able to, as a result, keep my jobs. Um, at that point in time, I was going to school full time. Uh, I was working at a dressage barn, uh, certain evenings a week. I was teaching a spectacular volume of riding lessons at my house um, on another little mare that I had at the time. Um, And then I was working for the reigning trainer, Um, but basically just learning wherever I could, you know, um, just being a sponge and just capitalizing on as many growth opportunities. And what I realized in retrospect was because I had an affinity for a high producing high quality horse program, but I didn't have the resources resources necessarily for it. Through education, I could bridge that gap. I could learn everything that I needed to learn. I could, you know, so many of the things that we think that our horses need that are expensive, they don't. And so many of the things that that could help them in a similar way, we can do if we're just willing to work hard enough. Um, and so that's what I did. And I always had a passion for program design and learning about barns and through riding for a million different disciplines and for, uh, you know, riding a ton of different horses working for the trainer. Um, I really started to gain such a strong appreciation for discipline diversity and that the roots of good quality horsemanship are all the same. Good quality horsemanship translates no matter what you're doing the manifestation or the demonstration may be different but all of it translates and you know there's so much division in the industry between different kinds of riders but at the end of the day there is so much that each discipline has to contribute 
and to teach. And I was able to see that because at, you know, varying points in, especially during my college career and my college age, I would work at a dressage barn in the morning and an eventing barn in the afternoon. And then the next day I would go and start colts and then ride finished reining horses. And then I would ride my barrel horse at home and I would trick ride on the weekends and I was teaching riding lessons and I was just picking up riding opportunities wherever. And I was tried to learn as much as I could um, so that I would be ready um, for any opportunity in the future. And uh, I went down to Virginia to visit a friend of mine and ended up um, through some connections that I had made at the ranch that I'd worked at as a child, um, finding another youth camp in Virginia that needed a lot of help with their horse program. And I'm so um, glad you said this because this was my next segue. Ooh, yay. But I wanted to touch on something else that you said, like how you were kind of stretched into so many different directions and, and uh, working in so many different disciplines. I think we all need to like take note here because this is a common Caroline theme that <laughs> not everybody has the energy to sustain, but <laughs> we all have something to learn from Caroline in this respect because she's doing at any given point 9,000 different things. So I just wanted to make sure that I interjected this little seed or planted a seed for a thought here let her continue talking, and we will come back to it later. Oh, so, yeah, that sounds so exciting. this is also another uh, pivotal kind of move in Caroline's, uh, oh, can't say journey, um, <laughs> Caroline's quest. I We're going to quest talk one day about why I don't like the word journey and why I don't like the word passion. We're going to have to explain that one day. Okay. Um, well, anyway, Caroline's quest, um, mm-hmm. but she now transitions down to Virginia, which is going to be uh, ultimately huge for her. Um, yeah. But I'll let her fill you in on her quest, quest. <laughs> journey so into this Virginia ranch. Um, which also, I guess, speaks to like the dignity that you afford and the the consideration that you afford, even the most seemingly insignificant things. Um, for at the time, like I was um, going to college, I was working for a bunch of trainers and I had the opportunity to come to Virginia and work at the little itty bitty tiny camp with like a couple like bedraggled horses and help them with their program. And I was like, all right, I guess this is what we're doing. Cause I do believe that it's so important to serve and to contribute value wherever you can, especially if there's a need. Um, so I because it was, was also, another similar Christian ranch to the ranch that you it was on a that, on yeah. a much smaller scale. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was I also had my own riding clients at this point in time. Um, I gave all of my lesson students away. I gave all of my riding clients away. Um, I and moved. this was at the point if you watch if you listen to my episode, this was the point where Caroline handed over her riding client to me in Pennsylvania. And this is when I started riding my first horse, Lily. So who you still have. It's like the circle of life. (laughs) It's the circle of our friendship. (laughs) Okay. Um, So back at it. Yeah. So I moved to Virginia um, and um, helped at this camp um, and just really had a a lot of time to spend just um, learning a lot about, again, like I had as a child, um, making a little go a long way and trying to build quality. Um, cause I think so many people think that you have to be rich in the horse world to have quality. 
and you don't. It's an expensive industry, but with education and hard work, you can create a tremendous amount of quality. Um, and I just think that that's so important Absolutely. to note. Um, I think I, it. I think it requires hard work, dedication, and patience. Absolutely. Well, no, I'm going to say education, dedication, Commitment. and patience. Yes. You have to know what know what it is when you see it. You have to be willing to work hard enough to for the make right up the difference. Yeah, and you have to be patient enough to wait for the right opportunity to come to you. Absolutely. But yes. Continue. And then you're ready to capitalize on it because you've done the legwork. And um, so I was down there and I wasn't really sure I was getting ready to go into my senior year of college. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do after college. Um, I Horses had been a driving point in my life, um, my entire life. And a man came up to me one day and said, hey, I have some friends that need some help with their horses. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, bring them for 30 days, whatever. Um, so I did 30 days on um, some people's horses in Virginia. Um, they ended up uh, being a great, um, connection for me and, uh, giving me, um, the opportunity, opportunity to become introduced to a huge university that has a tremendous amount of funding. And, um, as I was leaving their place one day, they offered me a job and I just clear as a bell. I remember standing on the porch and being like, okay, um, so I came down and met with planning and construction a couple of weeks later and I walked in the door and they said, tell us what you want to build and we'll build it. Um, so at that point I, uh, got with my advisor in college who was wonderful. And I said, look, it's important to me to finish my degree, but I have a career opportunity here that is incredible. Um, can I do both? And he said, absolutely. Your goal of your college education is to get a great job. I'm going to help you finish your degree online. And this was before online education was as prevalent as it is now. Um, and we're, you're going to move down there and you're going to start this job. And so uh, at 21 years old, um, I had the opportunity to start a collegiate equestrian program from zero. And I... And so did- I feel the need to interject here one more time. Apologies, oh, you're but I think I find it important to to notate that, and we didn't touch on it earlier. But Caroline actually graduated college or um, high school. Was it a year or a semester early? Oh yeah, it was, it was a year, year early. I did do that. It was a full year early, um, and so she also so not to mention like so she not only finished high school a year before I did. We met in high school, but she graduated before I did. Began college before I did. Um, but she also decided to take on her career before she was even finished school. So I, I feel like there's a bit of a message here. And and <laughs> it goes along with the theme of like <laughs> Caroline working on 9,000 things at once. It's like the girl cannot sit still and stop. She's constantly like looking forward. And it's like I'm in high school now, but... I can finish this thing in three years. I don't need four. I'm in, in college now, but I can th- I can finish this thing early. I don't need the full four years. And then she's like moving on to a job. And so I feel the need to comment onto that common theme yet again. <laughs> um, okay, I didn't even think I drank caffeine at that point in time. Oh, um, Lordy. <laughs> or the um, pre-workout. Yeah, that's true. Man, imagine, <laughs> imagine what my head might have just exploded. Um, (laughs) but again, um, through just, I, I attacked that opportunity 
with a vigor and an intensity and a dedication that I had literally been preparing my whole life to give to a career. Um, I was at the school for five years. Uh, During that five-year span, I was able to be the department head and head coach. Um, We built an entire equestrian program that went on to compete uh, toe-to-toe with some of the top equestrian schools in the country. We were undergoing our fourth expansion when I left, and I attacked it with the mentality of, we can do things differently than everybody else is doing them because we're not mired in let's do this the way it's always been done, or this is how we've been doing it for 30 years, or this is how we've been doing it for 50 years. I was like, let's do things differently. We're going to welcome all students. We are going to welcome all disciplines. We're going to cross train our teams so that the hunt seat kids ride the Western horses one day and the Western kids ride the hunt seat horses one day. We're going to offer free lessons and trail rides to the students on campus. We're going to have an outreach barn where we have minis that we take to every event. We're going to capitalize on every opportunity. We're going to serve as often as we can. Um, and it was so amazing because I was I was blessed with such incredible staff and such an incredible learning opportunity that the and I was so young and to a point um, naive. And what being naive enables you to do is it enables you to have the confidence to not know what you can't do. And so I was just like, here we go. Like I've got to prove myself. I'm a I'm a 20 year old 21 year old girl. Um, in a school demographic that was very strongly male in leadership positions. And I was out to prove um, not only myself, but what we could do um, with the resources and the correct mindset. And it was truly one of the greatest learning experiences and privileges um, that I've ever had. And I learned so much. Um, Although not not without um, a similar trial and heartbreak that I experienced in my first career endeavor. Yes, um, I feel like the things that you pour the most into have the um, have the potential to take the most from you. And I was pouring every ounce of my soul, um, all of it. In its entirety. Because in- like your colo- your collegiate career and my collegiate career, it was the kind of thing where you live on the premises. And yes. You, um, I lived you there. I worked there. You didn't I really take days there. off. <laughs> you didn't really take vacation. Your personal horses were there. So you were 100% all in. Your identity was probably at this time fairly A 100% your- without question. Yeah. I was that program and that program was me. It was mm-hmm. all... Um, But it's also a great learning experience because, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you have to be careful um, where you align your identity because it can be stripped from you. And um, it's one of the things that I really learned the hard way and and through um, being naive um, and a little too trusting and a little bit too humble. um, I ended up leaving on not great circumstances. I am thankful every day for what I learned there. Um, I'm very thankful that I'm no longer there anymore because it literally sucked the soul out of my body, chewed it up, spit it out, and then backed over it with a truck and pooped on it. Exactly. Um. (laughs) So let, let me like, so in that, in that moment when you were separating, what did you want to do with your life? Like, did you want to work with horses? I wanted to take a nap. (laughs) I wanted to take a nap because I was literally looking into what it meant to work for Walmart, which I I don't know. I was was gutted opportunity. I was truly gutted. So that's my point is like, 
what so were you, so at that point were you thinking I'm going to continue my career in horses or were you like at give that me point, something else to do? I honestly don't even know. I couldn't tell you the last time that I had ridden one of my own horses. I couldn't tell you the last time that I had done something in the horse industry that wasn't tied to the program that I had built. Um, I couldn't tell you where my identity ended and that program began and to Mm -hmm. have it all, um, it got to the point where, um, my, and I'm so gracious and thankful. Um, I had two huge dogs. I had three horses and my parents literally came down in a weekend, literally forcibly removed the shell of a person that used to be their daughter from this program and took me home. I had the exact same experience (laughs) at my first career. I remember it. I remember it so vividly putting all of my positions, including my horse in a trail in a truck and trailer and driving it home to my parents' house and being like, here I I am want to do anything with horses ever again. I'm done. I remember the conversation. Yeah. I, I remember, I, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's like really important because there are probably people in the same scenario right now. And this industry has like such a, um, such a way of like, it's a wood chipper. <laughs> yeah. But it's really important to just, there are such good people in the industry and there are great opportunities in the industry and it's just a matter of finding something that really aligns with you um so if you happen to be going through a similar experience to what caroline or i went through there is and it's what you can take away from it like the worst Mm -hmm. things that happen to you have the most to teach you and i remember the conversation that i had with my mom and i'd had my letter of resignation typed up for months at this point in time because of the abuse that I was sustaining for lack of a better term. And I couldn't bring myself to turn it in. And she called me one day and she said, I have booked a U-Haul. Your father and I will be there in two weeks, whether you have resigned or not, you're coming home. And I recognize that so many people don't have that opportunity and I can never fully express the gratitude that I have. Um, So I came home and had no idea what I was going to do what my career looked like. Because I, if you had asked me, I would have literally stayed at that place until I died. I would have sold them my soul and been happy about it. And I did for several Mm -hmm. years. Um, And so it was so funny. Um, I was home for two weeks and this was my plan. I'm going to do nothing. I had worked really diligently to pay off all my debt. I had a savings. I had paid off my school loans. I'd paid off my car loans. I didn't have time to spend any money because I was working all the time. Um, I'm going to do nothing for like a couple months. Just do nothing but literally like sleep for more than like three hours a night and just recharge as a human being. And um, I don't even think it was two weeks. I think it was a week after I moved back. A gentleman who was a client of the trainer I had worked for in college Um, who I leased some horses from when I was at the school, uh, called me and he said, Hey, I hear you're back. Um, can I come meet with you? And, uh, I met with him and he said, Hey, I've got some colts that need starting. Um, do you want to do it? I said, no, absolutely not. I don't want to do anything with horses. I'm, I don't know what I want to do, but I know that that's not it. Yeah. And we got to talking and, um, he had a mare that I had started as a two-year-old that I had always had a soft spot for. And uh, so he said, he worked me and he knew it and I loved it. It was amazing. He was like, well, 
why don't you at least put a ride on this mare for me while you're here? Because it was about a 90-minute haul from my house. And I was like, okay, fine. I rode her, and I was like, man, I've always liked this horse. Um, she had been bred by his father. Um, I had started her as a two-year-old seven years prior, and uh, she ended up being one of the last horses that his father had bred. Um, so he kept her out of sentiment and um, had thought about putting her on the market. And so she had just been chilling with the broodmare. She was nine, and I rode her and just loved her. Um, and, uh, so I went to work for him starting two-year-olds and I started a couple crops of reigning two-year-olds. And then, uh, a couple weeks later, I guess, uh, the gentleman that I had worked for, um, through high school and college called and he said, Hey, I need a training assistant again. Um, I need somebody to teach lessons. Um, so the horse world just kind of absorbed me back in, but the beautiful thing about it was after being ravaged so severely, by an institution that literally just slaughtered my spirit. Um, I went back to work for people who knew me um, before that and who were just such good quality people. Right. And just poured value and consideration and and like literally breathed me back to life in the horse world. Um, And so I started teaching and I started riding colts and um, going back and doing reining horses and, starting colts and problem horses. And I, at that point in time, I was like, you know, I was like, I didn't have a horse to ride at that point in time. I had brought uh, two retired horses and a little pony home with me were all that I had owned at the time. And um, the mare that I really liked, uh, the gentleman who called me, um, he put her on the market and uh, I watched one person ride her and it was a disaster. And I said, "Um, how about this? I don't want to cost you a sale but I don't think that you really want to sell her. How about I take her for 90 days? And at the end of the 90 days, you can put her on the market with a little bit more of a foundation um, or at least a little bit more work, some more conditioning, some more life skills. Um, but at the end of the 90 days, I get first right of refusal to keep her if I want to. Um, and it was funny because I, w- I remember thinking like, when was the last time I just had fun? That I wasn't in the show ring or coaching kids in the show ring or just when was the last time I had fun? When was the last time I did something in the horse world that I just really liked? And it was when I had been barrel racing in high school. And so that's what I started back doing. And I spent a couple of years just uh, working for the trainer um, that I'd worked for in high school, teaching lessons and starting uh, another barrel horse. So obviously, uh, if you've ever had a parent that you've conned into keeping an animal, once if you can get them to bring it to your house, it doesn't have it's to golden. leave. I backfired <laughs> that on myself. I brought this exactly. mare to my house for 90 days. Uh, she has not left. I still have her. Um, but I was able to start just exploring um, kind of coming back to life in the horse industry and uh, diversifying a little bit. Um, I started an online vintage clothing business um, that I absolutely love. I've always been a clothing hoarder and a fashion person. Um, And I spent the next couple of years just um, working on a smaller scale in the industry, but being um, much more true to myself and uh, much kinder to myself and trying to really explore finding a balance in this industry that requires a tremendous amount of hard work in order to be successful, no matter how you slice it. But you can work hard without wearing yourself completely out. And I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually and emotionally. Um, This industry takes a lot from you physically. It always has, it always will. 
Um, but your mindset and your mental state play such an important role. And that was the point in time where I started pursuing podcasts and reading books and um, really trying to uh, understand what had happened to me and understand how I could guard my mindset to keep it from happening to me in the future. Um, and uh, so um, I was dating a gentleman at the time who was wonderful. I was just going to say, you have skipped over like one really important (laughs) (laughs) piece of your life, which was as kind of as it was falling apart. As my life was exploding into a thousand ugly pieces. Which is a bit similar because as my life was imploding in my first job experience, um, I met my husband and kind of as your job was imploding, you kind of began a, began a relationship with your husband. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I started dating a man who is not a horse person, um, but he is the most supportive, lovingly gracious human being that I could ever imagine. And it's kind of like what you think you need in life versus what life shows you that you need are so different. And um, getting through the beginning of a relationship when, um, I don't know, maybe this is too much to share. I don't know. Well, we're going for it. I was going through a divorce at the same point in time, my career was exploding and I was gutted relationally as well as professionally. Um, and so as all of that, I was as well, remember it's like, so there's, I remember in our first, our very first episode, we talked about how the two of us are kind of always experiencing life in two separate tracks, but in two like polar opposite worlds this is kind of how it relates I had a terrible first experience in the workforce you had a terrible first experience we both were in really toxic relationships and then immediately following we separate from these employment these employment um these toxic employment environments and we separate from these toxic relationships and then here we are with our husbands and And I guess the takeaway from that is Things are going to be hard regardless. If where you're at right now is is awful, but you're scared of making the hard choice to make a change, go ahead and make the change because what you're doing every day is still hard. You're just comfortable with how hard it is. But if you can bite the bullet to suffer through the gauntlet of hardness that's different, that you're uncomfortable with, what's on the other side? I could have never imagined... At a point in my life six years ago, if you had told me what my life would grow to become after just blatantly suffering for that period of time, I probably would have just spontaneously died. Um, <laughs> and so I met this wonderful man who does not do the horse thing. Um, and to date somebody coming out of a, a, of a ugly divorce coming out of an ugly career explosion who moves back in with her parents uh, and keeps riding horses against all reason is just... For the record, I did the same thing. It was literally (laughs) same, same life, different scenario. Yes, and it's just like... And just this like quiet, unassuming, like just work every day. And I just like literally clung to that. (laughs) And so a couple of years go by and I was so hesitant to progress forward with the relationship. And he just hung in there with me, um, for almost four years and then, uh, proposed to me last year in New York city. 
Um, we, <laughs> this is where it gets kind of crazy. Um, we got married uh, this past August at the same venue on the day after Annie and her husband got married the year before. <laughs> yeah. We um, literally like, lead the same life. <laughs> um, same venue, and, same weekend, different year. <laughs> so almost, and kind of like without intent. Um, yeah, basically. So uh, I, um, I did move to Virginia. Um, I resigned from my teaching and training job in Virginia. I had transitioned as much of uh, my um, income and day-to-day into the online business in the anticipation of moving. And Which we'll plug I, later. Whoop, whoop. And whoop. Uh, so I moved to Virginia. Um, the only thing that I had been doing for me in the horse world for the last couple of years is pursuing what makes me happy. Um, I was teaching and I was training, but when it came to my time with my horses, I guarded it ferociously because I got into this industry because it made my soul happy. And no matter how much I gave to, of myself to this industry, I had learned to carve out a piece for me that was just, this is what I do in this industry to make me happy. And so the mare that I got, I still have, she is delightful. Um, actually right now she's a little bit broken, but we're working on the, the um, but, but uh, so similar I, life tracks. I mean, my horses are broken at the moment too. Um, <laughs> hence all this there. free time for podcasting. <laughs> Work in progress. <laughs> um, but yeah, I live uh, in Virginia now. I moved down here um, with my husband, which is a transition, um, a huge transition for me. My horses have always either been at my house or at a facility that I have run. Um, so six months ago, I became a boarder for the first time uh, ever in my horse life, which has been an interesting um, progression and transition. Um, my retired horse that I bought as a 12-year-old, the crazy one, um, and her pet pony live uh, at the farm that my parents have. Um, my mom and dad have really, the, having the horses there have really grown on them. Um, so my retired horse and pony live there. My mare lives down in Virginia with me. Um, I sell, uh, vintage clothing on the internet, which is great because I can be a clothing hoarder and then I buy things and I'm like, if I don't wear it, I'll just sell it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, I, um, I just have really, I guess, come to a place in this industry that I'm just so thankful for and that I've learned so much from, um, and that I've really just tried to learn. It was kind of funny, like, in the early part of my horse career, I sought knowledge from any professional or trainer or barn or opportunity that I could. Um, so it was kind of like this like external knowledge. And I still do capitalize on as many of those opportunities as I can. Um, but through trial and tribulation and gut-wrenching loss, um, I have kind of transitioned to now I seek to augment Uh, my education with what can I learn about the human mind and about success and about goal setting and about human capability and accountability and visualization and goal setting and, you know, where I can go in the future and what I can um, work every day to do with my life. And, um, you know, I just, uh, yeah, it's been such a strange process. It's, uh, it's surreal. I'm sitting here right now and I'm like, it is just surreal if you had told me uh, six years ago when my career was on fire 
and I was in the middle of a divorce and I was a broken human being that I, all I had to do was just keep going through it and just don't get lost there. Like so many people go through tribulation and then they camp out. They're like, well, this is where we are. We're setting up shop. And I just like resisted that every day. Like this might have been what happened to me, but I am not going to live here. I am not going. And I think you did that too. Like when you, your first career experience was so negative, you didn't camp out there. You left kind of a little bit broken, but you intentionally put yourself back together and you strived every day. Like, all right, like I am going to own what happened, but I'm going to push forward. I'm going to push through and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out the next step. Like I'm not going to camp out here. And like a little bit of this is like an unhealthy denial that people in the horse world have. Like you get kicked in the leg and you're hobbling around. People are like, are you okay? Like, yeah, I'm fine. You do like the mental version of that a little bit. You're like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm fine. But there's a healthy way of doing, yeah, I'm fine. And there's a dangerous way of doing, yeah, I'm fine. And I think yeah. find the healthy way of doing, yeah, I'm fine. Um, and I feel like people Agreed. know that. But that kind of leads me into one of my other questions that I had for you um, in preparing this was, so a lot of, I hear you say a lot, as you just said now, um, like if you had told me that I would be leading the life that I'm leading now, like five years ago or whatnot, I wouldn't have believed you. Um <laughs> do like so here's my question is that something that you feel as though you've manifested or you visualize visualized or is this something that through hard work and determination through patience through sheer dumb luck like how do you feel I think probably a combination but I think Mm -hmm. the biggest thing um and something that was instilled in me from day one is prepare for the opportunity And that way, when it happens, you're ready to capitalize on it. So many people are waiting for the opportunity and then they're not prepared for it when it comes. So they can't capitalize on it. And I don't mean just career opportunity. The the saying like luck is opportunity meets preparedness. Yes. It's a uh, Mark Twain. He says um, most people don't recognize opportunity because it goes around wearing overalls and dressed as hard work. Um, and it's, and I don't mean just in your career. I mean, like you have an idea of the kind of man you want to marry, you, you want to marry, you better hustle up and be kind, become the kind of woman that that man wants to be married to, you know, Mm -hmm. you need to make your, it's kind of like dress for the dress for the job you want, not the job that you have. And on a grander scale, like you don't have to succeed every day. But every day you need to be intentional about creating the kind of person that you want to be in order to capitalize on the type of life that you want to have. Like Mm -hmm. I very feasibly could be like bummed out, destitute and, you know, living in my parents' house and just quit. Like I literally could have just quit and lived there. And I don't mean just live in the physical sense. I mean like live as in dwell there in my mental headspace forever. Right. Um, but but my question is, do you think that there was a subconscious visualization or awareness of where your life was going? Like, do you feel as though you, you possibly could have manifested something and been like, I'm um, super into fashion. Like you're super into, um, like journaling, like whether it be like you cut out photos <laughs> of things and paste of them into magazines, but you're super, you're super involved in that. So do you feel as though that there's a possibility that you, 
through all of these 9,000 projects Absolutely, that you have going it's like at the, once. Um, it's like the reticular activating system. The things yeah. that you attune your brain to be aware of, your brain picks up. Yes. They're there anyway. But if your brain is not attuned to them, it's like, and you hear this analogy a thousand times, your friend gets a red Honda Accord and then you start seeing red Honda Accords everywhere. Does that mean that there are actually more red Honda Accords on the road? No, it just means that you're attuned to them. So now you're paying attention to them. Because you have been cutting out photos of like high fashion and pasting them into like journals for years yeah, I and actually it, am looking at the stack of them right now, and it's since and 2003. Yeah, and I'm like, is that a coincidence that you now have a business selling vintage clothing and uh, uh, I don't like designer clothing so. online? Like, I, I argue no. I feel like that's something that you've manifested, whether or not it was conscious or subconscious. Like, I that that's kind of my question to you but it's my my instinct is no that that, that's something that you've created knowingly or not um I think that you are correct I think that you can want something but not do any of the steps to achieve it or you can not even know that you want something but you can proactively and productively seek anything you know what I mean like it doesn't have to be like I want to be a blank yeah because I feel like through my through my um not to get back on me because I don't think this episode is about me but I think that through my experience I had a very clear idea of what I truly wanted the entire time but that I was so like beaten down through that first experience that I consciously tried to redirect my career, but my subconscious knew and stayed true to what I truly wanted the entire time. I was just constant, like consciously trying to veer away from it because it was, it had been so painful and so disappointing, but subconsciously I knew I was going to make it back to that. Like, I knew that that's what I truly desired in my heart. And so, like, I find myself here in California mentoring and or being mentored, excuse me, and tracking towards success. But I don't feel like it's through coincidence. I feel as though it's it's because it's something that I've genuinely subconsciously like manifested. And it's and it's because I th- I think that you're spot on, and I think that it's because like it's kind of like the running thing. Like step one is admitting you have a problem. Well, step <laughs> one is awareness. Like yeah. if you're not aware of what's going on around you, the circumstances, the opportunity, the the deficit. Um, cause that's, was the big thing that I recognized in myself through that learning process. And somebody asked me the other day, they were like, would you do things differently? And I was like, I would take every ounce of pain and sacrifice and just brutal disappointment and abuse. I would take it all. Abuse is such a strong word, but I feel like that's kind of what it was. Um, it was pretty bad. um, I would take all of that again in a heartbeat if I knew then that I would end up here but I think part of the beauty in the process is that you don't know but you keep striving with the best of intentions anyway but you arm yourself with the knowledge that you gain through going through the process and so I will say that like I didn't know specifically where I wanted to go at that point in time but I knew that I didn't want to stay where I was at 
And I knew that I wanted to be doing something differently. And I wanted to be a part of this industry and I wanted to serve other people and I wanted to take good care of myself and that I wanted a loving, constructive and supportive and productive relationship. And that I wanted, I knew what I wanted from life. And so I made the decisions to prepare myself just like I did when I was a little girl and I was researching equine nutrition and reading nutrition studies like a weirdo at 14 years old and how that would serve me in my career in choosing a nutrition plan to implement for 70 horses at the program that I ran. And I didn't have anybody to ask because I was the top of the food chain. And Right. Yeah. There's something that's, there is literally something to being the person that has to come up with solutions like I think that that's so valuable is so many times when I was a manager people would come to me with problems and there was something so valuable in being like there's nobody to ask I need right. to figure this problem like out. I can ask my like, boss no. but you know what he's gonna say uh do horses need figure to it eat out. twice on Christmas twice on Christmas I'm like uh do you eat twice on Christmas do you use the bathroom on Christmas like the buck stops right. here like I've got to figure exactly. it out I've got to come up with exactly. a solution Exactly. Okay, um, so this yeah. leads me also. I have one. I have there. So you put me through the torture of several questions at the Ooh, end. Oh yay! The interview. So this leads me to the question of the nine thousand projects that you have going I on. I love it. It makes my soul happy. What think you? What What do you think? Do you think that you are like innately that way? Do you, is there something that created you to be that, or can you speak as though like? Do you just have more energy than the average bear? But why is it that you are constantly working on 9,000 things at once? My husband makes fun of me all the time because he says that I hop out of bed in the morning like, bring it on day, which I do to a degree. But I think about it this way. And it's kind of like a cumulative uh, understanding. You have such a limited time of life and learning and contribution and if you look, it sounds so silly, but you look at like a cumulative time over somebody's lifespan that they spend in bed or that they spend on the toilet or that they spend brushing their teeth, it accumulates to a huge volume of time. Like one of the things that was on my goal sheet 2015 was how much time are you spending on time sucks on the internet? Okay, a lot. What if you channeled that into productivity? And that's where my business came from. Like if you can attack every day as like today was the only March 22nd, 2020 that there will ever be ever be in the history of the world. And I don't have to change the world today, but I can be productive in my life today. So like today in apocalypse lockdown day number, I don't know, seven, nine, approximately. (laughs) I just want to think how can I augment my life? How can I serve people around me? How can I help other people? How can I contribute to me? Because the amazing thing that I think of all the time is, especially nowadays, there's no excuse for not doing it. The cell phone that everybody has in their pocket has more capacity and more power than the computer that literally took a rocket ship to the moon. You can learn anything on it. And you know what most people do with it? They watch cat videos and share memes. Like... Just pursue life with a vigor and an enthusiasm. And if I, um, you can be spastically diverse if you're rigorously organized. So I can be uh, an entrepreneur and a horsewoman and a homemaker and a kitchen painter and a dinner cooker and a fitness competitor and an encourager and a barrel racer and a 
any of those things. I can be any of those things or all of those things. All I have to do is be organized and be intentional and manage my time accordingly. And also understand that like, you don't have to be on your A game all the time, but the times that you're not on your A game, you need to not live there. You need to be like, all right, that was it. We're done. Let's move and shake. So yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Absolutely. I totally agree. I think that every day I think as soon as I have a down moment, I try my best to use it in a productive way. Sometimes that is like through rest and rehabilitation. Um, But a lot of times it's like, all right, what is going to take me one step closer to my goal? And is it going to be watching Netflix? Likely not. It's going to be there. There are like I have a list of things that I'd like to accomplish and I examine them when I have spare time and downtime. And even if it's one day a week that I have to use productively, I'm looking at my goals and how I can use that time productively. Absolutely. Spot Um, on. That takes me into the question that you tormented me with. (laughs) Describe yourself as an equestrian in three words. Um. Ooh, that's a tough one. I would say... It isn't, in- isn't it? <laughs> it's isn't so it? funny you mentioned that. I should have brainstormed this before. Funny you should ask. <laughs> um, I would have to say enthusiastic. Um, I, built, yeah. I built a vision board in, when I was 14 with pictures of barrel racers and rodeo people that I liked. And as a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote on it. And I still have it. It's in my tech room. And it says, nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. And I think I'm enthusiastic, um, enthusiastic, um, I think diligent, uh, like I'm a big fan of like, you don't have to change the world today, but if you take a step in the right direction, like pretty soon you're going to walk pretty far. Um, so, uh, enthusiastic, diligent, um, oh, I don't know. Well, it's so the words that I would have chosen, you've you've chosen similar words, but I would have said like charismatic, um, deliberate, and probably. Um, oh, I appreciate that. I don't. It's so funny. I never think of myself as charismatic. I always think of that as like really? a. Really. I know it's weird. I don't think about it that way. But you've said that a couple of times, and every time I'm just like incredibly flattered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, she thinks I'm charismatic. I'm so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like when you think about all of the people that you have, um, I mean, like you you are venturing into a new area of social media. And I think you do tremendously well in this area because you're so charismatic. I mean, I talk a, a lot. <laughs> well, that, but, um, you say, enthu- what was the word that you said? Enthusiastic. enthusiastic. No. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think charismatic. Yeah. That is, I, I, I really appreciate that. I yeah. didn't, would not have organically established that myself. But that's just, it's always interesting to, you know, I think like it, that's another, another, um, window into, um, we, we both tend to be humble to a fault. And I think that that's one, one more example of how, um, we both kind of see ourselves differently than the rest of the world sees us. But, uh, it's always, it's good to have an accountability partner that kind of helps you illuminate, your real self and charge ahead. Yes. And I am grateful for you in that every day. 
Oh, as am I. For you. Um, <laughs> let's see. What? Okay, here's another. This is another question that you made me answer. What? But it's a good one. What's the best advice that you've been given or would give to others in relation to the equine community? Oh, I have two things. Um, thing number one is something that I continually, I remember it viscerally and I think about it all the time. Um, cause I do have a tendency to be timid and lack confidence, um, especially from a demonstrative perspective in this industry. And I was so fortunate to be able to work for a gentleman that did not care and put me in the hot seat all the time. And I had to just tough it out and fake my way through it. And I used to worry so badly. Oh my gosh, I'm going to mess up this horse. I'm going to mess up something. I'm going to break something. I'm going to do it wrong. And they're never going to be able to do it ever again. And he would literally, he called me Martin, which is my maiden name. He'd be like, Martin, there is nothing that you're going to do to mess this up that can't be fixed. And my boss does that all the time. <laughs> it just changed my perspective because I went from feeling like I was going to like, somehow be inadequate and bestow irreparable damage on whatever I was doing to like, even if I mess it up, he could teach me how to fix it or worst case scenario, he could fix it for me. But there, there is fixing it. Like you're not going to do anything to this horse that isn't fixable. And what you're going to learn through like, what was it? Was it you? You said burn the waffle. Was that the analogy? Like you might burn a couple waffles, but you're going to turn into a darn good brunch chef. And like you can, you know, and, um, so that I guess would be, um, like my, the best advice that I've ever been given. Um, the best advice that I could give to others is absolutely education, education and add value. If you can educate yourself and add value in whatever space you want to be involved in, you are primed and ready to capitalize on an opportunity. That is twofold. You educate yourself, learn whatever you need to learn, whatever you can learn, whatever somebody will teach you, because you can learn even from somebody what you don't want to do, what you don't want to be like, you can learn. Mm -hmm. And you take that education and you're ready and prepared, and then you start adding value. You serve, you help, you clean somebody's tack, you muck their stalls, you carry their water buckets, you figure out what you want to do, not just in this community, but in the world, and you go, hey, I'm willing to do this for you. I can do this for you. I see that you have a need here. I can help you with it. I'll do it for free. I'll do whatever give me the opportunity and I will serve you and I will add value to you is so powerful. So those would be my two things. And don't you feel like that type of education often comes through humility? Absolutely. You will never Mm -hmm. learn if you go into a situation thinking that you already have it figured out. Absolutely. Well, is there anything that you would like to add that you feel like I have neglected to ask? Uh, My horse's name is Luce. I forgot that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Also, your first horse's name is Sugar. I was like, we got to figure out how to say Sugar because I'm sure we'll talk about her again. Yes. She is the, it's super funny. Um, 
She almost killed herself this past summer with an injury, and I was fully prepared to put her down, and my unhorsey husband came up to me as I'm standing in the barn in tears, waiting for the vet to get there to put her down, which I was fully expecting, and he said, Because she literally had a hole in her head. Yeah, literally, um... Try to decapitate herself. Meh, I say decapitate. Harpooned. Yeah, harpoon. Um, and my husband to be. This was literally a month before our wedding. My fiance came up to me and he said, "Look," he said, "I know that you ride Luce right now and you love her, but you have Sugar's picture on your nightstand by your bed, and if it's reasonable to try to save her, we can save her." Which A is why I love him, and B <laughs> is why she's still alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so this is not from lack of trying to kill herself. Uh, yeah, the horses in my life are uh, Sugar, who's the one that I bought um, when I was 12, and she's my retired crazy lady, and her pet pony, and Luce is my lovely lady that I have now. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have many, uh, many more exciting uh, episode topics to come in the future. But we felt like to really get started properly, we'd have to touch on the two of us, our history together, and how we came together in this horse world, this crazy horse world. Um, so we hope you join us in the future. And we'll touch on some topics that hopefully are a bit more relevant to you. But we felt like we really had to kind of delve into our backgrounds (laughs) yeah introduce ourselves before we could get going um so so yeah thank you so much for tuning in and per usual if you would like to keep up with us and keep up with some of the supplemental content that we produce uh you can follow us on instagram at equestrian and that's e-q-u-e-s-t-r this is where it gets crazy I-E-N-N-E underscore podcast, uh, or you can shoot us an email. We would love to hear from you at equestrianpodcast at outlook.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.